Hello and welcome to Fireside Farmmaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Rashad talking about everything Farmmaker. Hello, I'm Michael Rashad and welcome to Fireside Farmmaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne, our special guest Mark LaRochelle, or our regular guest Mark LaRochelle, and our very special guest Darren Terry. Hi, this is John Mark Osborne. I'm excited to have Darren Terry on our podcast today. I grew up with Darren Terry in the FileMaker market, working at Claris, this is the first Claris, not the second Claris, and we worked in the technical support department. I think we got hired about the same time, but that's kind of in the past. I don't remember exactly, but I call him the godfather of multi-keys because he introduced me to the magical combination of copy-all records, serial numbers, and multi-key relationships to save and restore found sets of records. And people still actually use these techniques today, amazingly. I think it was back in 1996 that he published uh, this article working for Claris. Uh, Darren is also very well known for talking about dependencies and calculations. He's written an article, presented at FileMaker DevCon and Pause on Air. And we'll include a link to that article uh, in the podcast description. But what we're going to talk about today is that dependency tree. So like uh, Michael said, we also have Mark La Rochelle and his big brain here along with the talented Michael Richard who introduced himself. So let's have Mark introduce himself and then we'll go with Darren and then we'll start off talking about, uh, you know, whatever we talk about today, wherever it goes. This is big brain Mark La Rochelle from Productive Computing. <laughs> Thanks for these compliments. And it's always great to be a regular guest on this podcast. I've learned a lot and it has been uh, really enjoyable to be with you guys. We're from Productive Computing here in Southern California and we do just about everything. FileMaker been doing it almost as long as you guys. And just I just want to say thanks for having me. Uh, I guess that's my turn. Um, my name is Darren Terry. Um, I work for a company called Pacific Data Management. Um, here in, we're located here in San Jose, California, uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Um, I have been with PDM uh, for 20 years. Um, so I've been uh, doing FileMaker consulting and development uh, since 2000. Before that, I worked with John Mark at Claris, um, the first Claris. Uh, I was in tech support for about four years. Um, at the end of that time, I was supporting every product uh, that Claris then uh, shipped or produced. Um, and a little trivia note, I, I took the very last Claris tech support phone call uh, the day that Claris became FileMaker Incorporated. Um, so that I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Actually, I didn't know that. I... Uh, after, after I left tech support, I joined uh, the developer relations group at Claris, and I was the technical liaison for developer relations, which essentially means I, I supported what was then the, uh, the FileMaker Solutions Alliance, which became the FileMaker Business Alliance and is now Claris Partners. Um, basically, if any of the uh, developers around the world uh, had a problem, uh, they could escalate it to me and I would get it to the engineers and I would get them an answer one way or another. Uh, and that, that was my job. I also uh, organized DevCon that year. This is 1999, uh, 2000, I guess 1999. Um, I, I also uh, supported the website. I took care of the developer section of the FileMaker website uh, at the time. 
I left Claris in the summer of 2000, joined PDM, uh, and have the rest is history. I've been I've been here ever since. So, did you ever work with Rick Kalman when you were in supporting developers? Uh, actually, actually, no. Uh, my my last day uh, was a Friday, and Rick Kalman's first day was the following Monday. Um, so he he was hired to replace me. Um, his his first job was technical liaison for developer relations, um, and he, he so he moved right into the position that I had vacated. I, I believe it was exactly that Monday. It might have been a week later, but in any event, it was it was right around that time. Uh, so no, I I never overlapped with Rick uh, as far as working at at FileMaker. Are you still avoiding each other? No, no. Uh, Rick's a good guy. I like Rick a lot. Um, I have no problems at all with with him, and have never. <laughs> yeah, I think just about everybody likes Rick Coleman. I have never heard anybody say anything bad about Rick, and and which is a great thing because he's been uh, with uh, you know Claris and FileMaker for you know a couple of decades now, and and he's done some wonderful work there. And and having somebody stay in that position for that long is is unheard of, but also beneficial to the market because he knows what FileMaker is all about. Exactly, I totally agree with that. He's he's a smart guy. He knows what he's doing, uh, and. Uh, not only that, he has a a heart for developers, which speaks you know, to us. But we're we're developers here. Uh, he has a a real heart for developers, and it's really really good to have a guy in that position uh, with that attitude towards the developer community. I think personally, and so I appreciate him a lot. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think he's passing it on to Robert Halsey too. That whole, I mean, Robert probably already had some of that developer heart out there, but I mean, I, I like that he's, you know, Rick won't be there forever, right? And Robert's uh, hopefully going to take over the reins. I'd like to see him because he's a, a super great guy. So, okay, so let me ask you a few things about Claris days before we get into the dependency tree. Um, tell me about uh, who was your mentor there? Did you have one or? Yeah, <laughs> actually, I did. Uh, I had a couple. Um, when I was hired at Claris, uh, I had the tremendous good fortune uh, when they assigned where my cube was going to be. Uh, my cube was situated directly between uh, Alexi Folger and Jimmy Jones. And if you know who those are, you, you know that they are they they represented a great percentage of the brain trust of Claris tech support at the time. Um, and to this day, they're both some of the smartest people I've known ever known. Yeah. And Jimmy's still um, at Claris, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 I was going to say at FileMaker. No, no, that's right. It is Claris again. Um, <laughs> yeah. Jimmy works uh, in the IS department. He's, he does internal FileMaker development on their internally used tools. Um, uh, he, wor his, he works with Jeff Benjamin uh, there. And uh, I do a lot of work there. I, I work two days a week. Well, I used to work two days a week on site there at the wedge with them uh, before the shelter in place hit. Uh, and now I'm doing it remotely. But yeah, it's, I still spend two days a week working with those two on internal systems at Claret. And Alexi Folger, I became a systems engineer, but I kind of lost contact with her once. I believe she's not with FileMaker or Claris anymore. Yeah, I, I believe uh, last I heard, I believe she's at Apple now. Um I'm not positive, uh, but she taught me so much about the calculations, about how to deal with getting things done, not just in FileMaker, but in, across the product line, but 
but I applied a lot of what I learned from her to my knowledge of FileMaker. I, I would say uh, that between the two of them, uh, maybe 75, 80% of all I know about FileMaker came from those two. And, and other than, you know, new stuff that has come out since, but the basics, you know, the foundation of my knowledge of FileMaker came from those two and they poured all their information into me. And I, I'm eternally grateful. Yeah. I, I, I had a couple of mentors there, Michael Whitney. Um, he was, he was a great guy, um, kind of, uh, took a dark path, but, uh, we won't talk about that. I learned a tremendous amount sitting across from him. He was a smart guy. I also sat across from Mark Stobbs, which you probably remember. And also sat across from Dave Heber, who was a tremendously smart guy. There was a lot of smart people in tech support and they went on to do some cool stuff. Yep. I totally agree with that. John, how did you get in? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story the way I tell it, because I was working uh, in uh, Sunnyvale at a place called the Mac Shop, which is no longer around. And I, before I got in the job there, I was uh, working at Apple uh, in their customer service. And after the customer service was you know, over, I decided to move on. I got the job at the Mac Shop, and I also applied at, at Found, or Claris at that point for tech support. And they basically took about nine months to hire me. I kept, you know, I did the interview and I kept calling back every month saying, Hey, I'm just really interested in the job. Lovely. And they, I think they finally relented and let me have a job there. So when, when was that John? Oh, that was, that was, uh, Oh, you're going to make me remember dates. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm 53 years old now, so I don't remember so well, but that was, um, since you're so old, just, Mention the decade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That's the question. Was it the late 80s or the early 90s? Let's see. <laughs> but it was a long time ago, and uh, I spent five years there um, working at, at, uh, at Claris. Uh, I moved up to, uh, to, uh, into uh, testing. It wasn't my cup of tea. I spent about a year there, went back to tech support, and then went on to do my own thing after that. But do you remember a guy named T.G. Ricker? Yes. Yes. I just, it was funny. He came to my mind because uh, he, was, he, was, he was a great guy. I liked him. He was super duper patient. Um, one time he took an eight-hour phone call on HyperCard. Literally. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm not. I'm not um, he, it was eight hours long, literally. I'm not exaggerating at all. He spent his entire day on this one phone call. And that's the kind of way that Claris tech support was back then. They really let you do whatever you want and help people tremendously. I mean, you don't get that in tech support these days. And, and I saw him, he apparently is working at Saliant now as a developer for FileMaker. And I just, I, I don't know, I should do a little shout out to TG um, and his patience. And, you know, he, he may have not had this or had that, but he was super duper patient with everybody. I always, always uh, admired that about him. Yeah. Speaking of TG Ricker, uh, you were asking about my mentors. Uh, the person that sat directly behind me across the aisle uh, in the cube directly behind me uh, was Bill Swaggerty, if you remember oh, yeah. Bill. Uh, very, very smart man. And he he also taught me a lot. Um, and then when after Claris became FileMaker Inc. and and a lot of the people that used to work there went away, you know, they were they were like, oh, uh, I I believe that TG and Bill ended up working together, I think. Uh, and I, Mark. And Mark. Gotcha. All three of them. Yeah, I forget the company, but it was some company that was doing something with FileMaker. Yeah. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, I actually helped him get the job there, um, oh. which was interesting. I let him know about it I, if that's helping him. So, <laughs> fair, fair enough. That, yeah, it was, those, I remember those days. Those were good days. Yeah, and uh, just one last thing about the the old days, the Nerf Arrow Wars. Oh. I mean, on Friday at two p.m. because they let us off early on Fridays. The the everybody's so happy and excited, and they the Nerf. It was like raining down Nerf arrows everywhere. Everybody's, you better not be on a phone call. <laughs> you're going after 2 p.m., you know, a long one, because yeah. you're going to get nailed with Nerf arrows. <laughs> when, but the day I was hired at Claris, they issued me uh, several pieces of equipment. Oh. They, they, yeah, one, one was my headset, and the other was a, a handful of Nerf arrows. <laughs> that is too funny. <laughs> Okay, well, that's enough reminiscing. I'm sure Mark and, and Michael are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> that's awesome. That's good. Okay, so let's move on to the dependency tree and Tell us what the dependency tree is and what got you so interested in the subject, um, Darren. Yeah. So uh, the dependency tree is a, a technical word for, it's, it's a real simple concept. It's, it's the list of all events or circumstances uh, that can cause a calculation in FileMaker to be reevaluated. And by the word calculation, I'm not necessarily referring to a calculation field. There, there are many, many things uh, in FileMaker that can invoke the calculation engine, um, and not just scripting either. Uh, there are objects on the layout. There are things you can apply to the objects on the layout, um, and uh, there's tons of things behind the scenes as well. So the dependency tree is the list of those events or circumstances that can cause uh, a calculation in FileMaker to be reevaluated, and what got me interested in it, um, I, I belong to several uh, email lists that are FileMaker oriented with with peer developers, and I was on a list. This is maybe ten years ago. I was on a on a particular list, and a discussion came up in which there was a disagreement regarding uh, when calculation fields would be evaluated under certain circumstances, and uh, by experiment and with anecdotal evidence, uh, it seemed that both sides of the argument were right. So someone said, hey, well, some of us are really dig into this. So I did. I, I dug into it and I figured out exactly where the discrepancy was and I figured out what, what the issue was, what, what the difference was. And so I explained it and then I, and then I said, yeah, this is a really interesting topic um, because in in... Digging into this, I discovered uh, that there was a difference between uh, a calculation field that was stored versus one that was unstored and, and when they would evaluate. And so that spawned a whole discussion. Wow, well, what about this? What about that? Talking about all the different web viewer. What about uh, conditional formatting? You know, there was a whole bunch of, the, it went down a giant rabbit hole. And someone in the middle of all that said, this would make a great DevCon session. And I went, wow, you, actually, this would be a great pause on error session because pause on error was right around the corner. So I, and I was already signed up, but didn't know what to present. Um, so I threw together a, a session and uh, at pause on error 2011, I, I sat in a hotel room and I gave a talk. And there were, I don't know, 30 people crammed into this hotel room, something like that. 
And it went over really, really well. A lot of people, they had no idea what, the, what some of the ramifications of uh, when certain events could trigger calculations to reevaluate, not just fields, but objects on the layout and so forth. And so there was a lot of interest. And people came up after, after that. They came up to me and they requested, they said, you, you, should, be, you should do this at DevCon. And so I tried to translate a pause on error session where people are right there in a hotel room and interacting with you to a DevCon presentation where you're up on stage and the audience is out there uh, was challenging. But so I, I basically approached it like it was a giant pause on error session at DevCon. I, <laughs> I pulled the audience. I would say, okay, so now I'm going to click this button and who thinks it's going to update this thing? And people would raise their hands and, and who thinks it won't? And people would raise their hands. And so I, I, I kind of modeled the whole presentation after the pause on error thing and it, it worked out. So Darren, let me ask you a question because a lot of the people who listen to our podcast are not experts. There are some experts, a lot of experts as well, but why is it important? Because this is obviously a very important subject, but I don't think people really understand why. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. If you're developing a solution, if you're working in a FileMaker database and you are using calculated objects or calculation fields, uh, you might be thinking that they're going to evaluate under very specific circumstances and you might depend on that behavior. Meaning, for instance, that an invoice's subtotal at the bottom won't update until you're expecting it to update. or uh, will maintain its value, whatever value it came up with, even later on if you, if you come back and revisit that invoice later. And that's relatively dangerous to assume because FileMaker is in control of when calculations reevaluate. We really aren't. I mean, we can prompt it. We can do things that will trigger a response from FileMaker that will cause something to reevaluate, but it's really up to the program itself. FileMaker is the one that's doing the reevaluating, and uh, oftentimes that reevaluation, which can change the data on the layout, uh, takes us by surprise or can take us by surprise. So I think it's important to understand uh, what is going on under the hood as far as FileMaker's how it's designed to keep data up to date uh, via calculations so that you can dependably rely on uh, those factors and it, it, it makes you, it keeps you safer um, it, in your solution. So that's why it, it's important. Great. Thank you. So let's recap just for people who want to look up information where Darren has already presented this. Uh, pause on error 2011. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, Darren. Uh, FileMaker, FileMaker DevCon 2012. That's, that's correct. FileMaker DevCon 2014 again, right? Right. Uh, yes. I, I, so between 2012 and 2014, uh, FileMaker shipped FileMaker Pro 13, um, which introduced a brand new way to use calculations, which was conditional visibility or hide object win. That was introduced, and so I people asked questions. Hey, what what about this? And so I represented uh, my session at 2014 as a result. 
which is kind of exactly why we wanted to talk to you again, because your last presentation was in 2014. So it's been six years and in a few things might have changed and we wanted to talk to you or at least update it and make sure things have, even if things haven't changed, just talk about it, give people a chance to hear this information that they may not be privy to. Um, so uh, I think it's important that we talk to you again and, and talk about this and maybe we'll get a few extra things out of you that you didn't present in DevCon, who knows? <laughs> Hopefully. And then you also have on FileMaker Hacks, just like it sounds, FileMakerHacks.com. They uh, basically took your DevCon presentation and, and put it into a, kind of an article format. Right. Yeah, that was right after DevCon in 2014. Um, uh, I was approached to write a, a guest blog article for FileMaker Hacks, and, and it worked out. And that's still there. You, it's It's... Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the things I read before uh, coming on here. I wanted to be prepared and, and uh, you know, the FileMaker hacks. I, so I, I, I say, I think I misspoke. I thought somebody had transcribed your, but you actually wrote that. Okay. I want to make sure you get the, you know, the proper. Uh... <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So let's talk about, I mean, you kind of um, alluded to the calculation engine being in so many places. And I'm just going to kind of list the places it's been or that it is right now. Uh, you have mm -hmm. calculation fields sure. and managed database, auto enter validation. In scripting, you have so many script steps to support the calculation or engine to use it. Set field, if, exit loop, you know, all those things. Uh, layout objects are the ones that have become in since you were talking about hide object, right? Well, we have now web viewers, filter right. portals, charts, button bars, tab controls, slide controls, hide object, conditional formatting, tooltips, placeholder text, and security has, of course, record level access, but it's everywhere. And that's your whole point is that you need to understand what each of these areas, they're not going to all update in the same way. And that's the whole point of this. They update slightly differently depending on where they're at. Some are the same as others, but some are different. And right. being able to anticipate how it's going to react helps you to develop a better solution. Absolutely. Yeah. And in, ad in addition to what you uh, listed, uh, there's also uh, custom menus. Um, you can you can calculate uh, calculated menu names or menu item names uh, in custom menus as well. And so there, there's, it, it, it pops up in unexpected places. Uh, where in there, it, I can't tell you how often deep into the product, deep in a, a series of dialogues, there'll, there'll be a specify button and you click it and whoops, there comes a calculation dialogue. So. And that's a good thing, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It's great to have that exposed. I, I think everything, everywhere that FileMaker says, Hey, specify a field. Uh, should be able to specify a, a function, a formula to express that field. Um, and we're getting there. It's not there 100% yet, but it, we're getting there. I agree. <laughs> I yeah, I have I have theories about that. <laughs> I uh, I think a different team of people program button bars versus buttons, um, and I I don't think that they share much code between them. But that's that's just speculation. Yeah, I, I gotta I gotta say, Michael, I would agree. You introduced me to the fact that hide object works differently on a button bar 
versus buttons and you can do some really cool stuff. And I implemented it uh, inside of a solution. My customer loves it. He can make what I did was he took his, instead of using tab controls, I use a slide control with buttons at the top, but sometimes on certain records, certain tabs shouldn't show. And I couldn't, all I could do with the tab control was make it, you know, uh, a little tiny little uh, tab without any text in it. But with the, with the button bar and, and telling it to go to object and change the slide uh, slide control, I was able to make the button bars or the buttons on the button bar appear and disappear depending on the record. And my, my client absolutely loves it. So. Yeah. Yeah. I've done, I've done stuff like that too with, uh, uh, you know, a list view layout, the column headers are sortable and I use button bars for those, um, because they're, the state is different between, uh, is this column in the sort order? Is this column sorted ascending? Is this column sorted descending? And so, uh, I use different, segments of a button bar to represent that and hide the other segments when depending on the situation it it works really really well that's a great idea i'd never thought about doing that i just wish that um, they would allow you to resize the the width of the buttons individually because that would make it phenomenally useful oh I, i totally agree with that as well what's interesting about this whole talk about calcs and how we love the fact that they're introducing more calcs with a specify button throughout the product, most notably in the script engine and the related items. At, at the same time, customers, since the days of these DevCon sessions, more and more and more customers are moving to hosted solutions. And what they're finding, surprisingly, is that these calcs that they've known, loved, and trusted for so long, in an unindexed situation, plague havoc on a hosted solution in terms of performance. So while I love uh, and need all the calculations that we have throughout the product and we want more, there you have to balance that with the fact that if it's going to be unstored uh, on a wide area network, you have to almost rethink about the entire solution and how you go about producing it. Yeah, I, I find myself using uh, nightly routines to uh, calculate out results and then put them in stored indexed fields for for finding and sorting um, later on. Uh, and the, the, that's kind of scary because the data can get stale. But if it's not the kind of data that changes very often, for instance, if it's invoicing data in a point, point of sale solution, say, uh, where once the invoice is done, it doesn't get touched again, well, then it, it, that could be very useful to help uh, improve performance across the WAN. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and you'll see modern solutions, um, whether it be programmed by someone like our company or other companies that are doing like CRMs or invoicing solutions, what you'll often see is they're now using script triggers to calculate the total of an invoice rather than a calculated field using a summary function Yeah. Uh, for that exact reason. So in that, in that situation, you have on-the-fly calculation, getting the best of both worlds. Now you have an indexed total and then when you use that total on a summary field, everything just cascades into just a great performing solution. Yep. Like you as well, we also use uh, nightly routines for dashboard data, data that you know doesn't necessarily need to be updated on the fly, but you're okay with that one day old data yeah. from a statistical standpoint, dashboards and things like that. It's perfect. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's made a huge difference. Yeah. Good, John. Uh, interesting you bring that up because I just wrote an article about, you know, it's it's a big giant subject, but I wrote uh, an article about how unstored calculations affect performance in a form view and list view, uh, especially when when you're used when you're developing it 
in a local, you know, a, a single user environment, it seems okay. But then when you add records and you put it over the network and maybe somebody doesn't have a good connection, then it can be a lot slower and you have to watch out about that. So that's at philosophyoffilemaker.com. It's the current article there right now. may not be when we release this, uh, release this but, uh, you know, it, it's uh, it's going to go over some of that stuff, and I think people really need to uh, realize. Uh, and you guys have already said, it, but I'm just I'm just you know coming along on your coattails here. They need to realize that calculations are a two-edged sword. They let you do some crazy stuff, uh, some great stuff, but you also got to watch out about performance. You know, with these these unstored calculations that people are just writing. Cal- oh, I can do with the calculate. Oh, I can make a whole report instead of using a subsummary. I can make a report with all calculations and relationships. And and all of a sudden they put it out there and they get a bunch of records and it's really, really, really slow. Yeah, there's always a balance between functionality and performance. And you know, the more I develop, the less I use calculations, and the more I use just set fields. You know, on the flyers, things that things are happening because you know that once they're set, they're going to be accurate and incredibly fast. But what's interesting is that I was looking at the inventory control solution that came with with the last version of FileMaker, and it was keeping track of inventory using unstored calculations, which is fine when you've got 10 records, but when you've got 10,000, it's absolutely, you couldn't possibly manage it. And it, you know, it's seemed that that was a really bad thing to release without thinking about the ramifications of it because people rely on those starter solutions. Interesting you mentioned that, Michael. You, you almost have to wonder the scope of how that how those templates were laid out because by introducing more advanced ways to handle that, such as, okay, script triggers, and then do you do the script trigger when the quantity changes or the amount changes? And then how does that play into the extended price? And then finally, the total at the bottom. As a template, if the goal is to say, we need someone up and running with a solution with the least amount of schema to not confuse the new user as to why script triggers are used and why, you know, could simply be, hey, let's throw a calc on there. One field, will call it a day. Not thinking about, well, if this person does have 10,000 records, hopefully they'll be advanced enough to work, find a workaround. So I just wonder, I always ask the why of an engineer when they create these templates. Do they really care or think about that far into the future of a best practice versus what's going to be the least amount of schema to get that person from A to B? It's a good point, Mark. But the, the downside to that thinking is that you're by releasing it in that way you're encouraging people who don't know better to think that that's the right way to do it now we've all seen people who've developed horrible solutions that have kind of sort of worked and then they they run into a brick wall and it doesn't won't go to that next step so you have to go back and rethink a lot of the solution sometimes throw it all throw it away completely but if you give people erroneous information to start with um, there's a real danger that they'll take it as gospel especially when you consider the source so i think that's a factor that really needs to be taken into consideration yeah and i think that's a factor that claris uh, and filemaker inc before them uh traditionally have not taken into consideration i think it's there there's a lot of people that they'll be handed the job they have a real job they're they're sqa or they're an engineer and they're they're trying to work on the real job, and then they're handed this this task: a hey, produce a quick 
template uh, invoice thing. We need it for the next release. Ah, and they roll their eyes and they have to, so they do it in one day. They crack, roll out a, a quick down and dirty invoice solution um, just to show, hey, this is how the product works. You know, this is, this is what you can do. Um, but it's not really that person's job to think about that at, at that level. You know, it's not, it, it could, I could totally, I could put myself in their position is what I'm trying to say. I could completely see myself as that engineer with a deadline to get other stuff done. Now I've been tasked to produce this thing and um, not even be conscious of the questions to ask uh, about, uh, about it, you know, about how I'm going to build it, about how I'm going to, uh, how how the product is going to come off with this as an example? Follow me. So I don't know. It's, I, I feel bad for uh, the people that were put in that position, and then I also feel bad for the customers uh, that take it as gospel truth. This is the way it should be built. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you this: I'm grateful for the situation because it, it, <laughs> uh, then they turn to uh, people like us to help them out. And so they're you know where, where would I be without? without people painting themselves into a corner with FileMaker, right? Probably still working with John Mark Osborne. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think what puts this in perspective, because um, you go, guys both have good points, um, but I think what puts it in perspective is somebody takes that template and starts entering data, and then all of a sudden they decide to put it on a server because they love it, and then all of a sudden, uh, a year later, they have 10,000 records. Then they're like, well, FileMaker is not very good. That, I think, is where the issue is with not providing something that's solid to go anywhere it could go. Well, I think that this is actually a very big point. And, you know, I get a lot of projects where somebody's had a solution developed and they've done it on the cheap because they just wanted to save money and the solution was developed by somebody who really doesn't know FileMaker well enough to be able to take on a job like this. And more often than not, they don't blame the guy who did it. They blame FileMaker or the guy who did it will tell them, oh, FileMaker can't do this or FileMaker can't do that. So it's a, it's a, it's a never-ending circle of um, you know, shifting the blame when most of the time it's just bad programming. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've had people tell me, uh, well, FileMaker's doing this. And what they really mean is my solution is doing this. My my solution is behaving this way. But that's not how they express it. They express it, hey, FileMaker's slow. It, and, and Or whatever. Uh, and it's because of the way it was designed and also the way it's being used. Um, both. The, the, and they it, that could be a vicious feedback circle, right? Uh, where... It was designed poorly, and you're also using it in a way that exacerbates the problem of the way it was designed. So, uh, and and then there's always that education moment where I say, okay, well, uh, we could redesign this, and then it'll be perfect. But it, that's you know that's down the road. That takes time, or we could put a bandaid on what you have right now. And I don't know. It, it, I, I totally agree with you that uh, it is it is important from the outset. Uh, to set people's expectations properly, but also to teach them properly. Um, and, and the templates are just one way to do that, but to teach them properly what the, the proper way to use the product is so that they don't find themselves painted into a corner. They don't find themselves running into that brick wall. Well, I mean, the truth is that we've all run into the brick wall, all of us. That's how we've learned uh, what doesn't work, yeah. but we yeah. have made it our profession, our, you know, our cause of 
life cause and are passionate about what we do. And so we've persevered and we've found the things that don't work and we've figured out why it doesn't work and how to make it work better. And we keep learning all the time. I mean, I'm still learning and I've been doing it 33, almost 34 years. So if you wonder why we're talking about this kind of stuff instead of the dependency tree, it's because it's, it's the way that these podcasts happen. And this is a very important subject to talk about. I'm glad Darren's uh, being patient with us uh, right now because this is a serious problem in the, in the market. We get files all the time, FileMaker Solutions or apps or whatever they want to call them these days. We get these solutions and we're supposed to fix them. And they've been designed improperly. It's not necessarily just the template. It's by somebody who said they knew FileMaker and they don't really. And we have to fix this stuff. And it gives FileMaker a bad name. And that's honestly uh, why there's an FBA, uh, why there's certification, is to, is to make sure that the quality of work stays up. And I think uh, we've expressed ourselves definitely here that this is a this is almost a podcast in, its, in itself. But uh, yeah, you've got to you've got to be careful about what you do and what you produce, and make sure that that you don't uh, you know make a lot of trouble for or somebody down the line. It's a very important uh, responsibility, in my opinion, to try to do your best job possible on developing a FileMaker solution so that it doesn't backlash on the client or or maybe your boss who's you know, you're maybe you're an in-house developer, but I think what we should do is we should probably move on and ask uh, Darren his our first question about uh, the dependency tree, um, which is uh, I think the first one here is uh, when do stored calculations update? Okay, so let's talk about calculation fields, um, and and what the, what the dependency tree is for them um, as. As anyone who's even mildly familiar with FileMaker knows, the calculation fields, fields of type calculation, fall into one of two basic categories. And it has to do with the way that the, whether or not the data that they evaluate to is stored in the database or not. So stored calcs versus unstored calcs. We're talking about stored calculations. Uh, the dependency tree for a stored calculation has three items in it. There's three things that can cause a calculation field that is stored to re-evaluate. To re the first thing is it evaluates when you define the field. Um, so if, if it's a mature system and there's already a bunch of records in the table and you add a calculation field to that table, FileMaker is going to evaluate that formula for every record in the table and save that data to disk at, at the time it's, it's defined or redefined. If you go in and modify it later, FileMaker is going to Reevaluate that formula and reset the stored data on disk for every record in the in the in the database, not the found set in the entire table. That's the first thing. The second thing is if you make a new record, when you when you create a new record, any stored calculations are automatically evaluated at that time and they are saved to disk. Their their results are saved to disk. And the third thing, and this is the important one because this is the real world. Uh, situation that causes calcs to evaluate is when local referenced data changes. And by local, I'm going to define that word. What I mean by that is uh, data that is in the same record uh, that the calculation field is defined in. So the same table and the same record, not related data. I'm talking about uh, a field that's on the layout or not, or not, but a field that is in the same record 
where the calculation is being evaluated. Um, and it's not sufficient merely to reference a local field in the formula of the calculation to cause it to reevaluate. Uh, what causes it to, what triggers it to reevaluate is that that locally referenced data has changed, has been edited. Uh, that's the dependency for the calculation field. So those are the three events that can cause a stored calculation field to reevaluate. Let me ask you a question real quick to just stop you for a second. What if FileMaker, I'm just posing, what if FileMaker worked differently in that any field that was referenced in a calculation, a stored calculation was updated? I mean, any field that was in there, related field, or what would happen if FileMaker tried to update if any of those fields were updated or changed or edited? Yeah, I, I've, I've often <laughs> pondered that myself. What, what would FileMaker be like if uh, you could trust that the calculation would reevaluate even if related data was changed or whatever? Um, I, you could get into some serious problems, though, because it's possible to define a circular reference. Um, it's, it's possible to say, okay, in, in table A, this calculation field is referencing table B, some field. And then in table B, a different field can say, I'm going to base my formula on table A, that, that calculation field. And uh, as a result, and then have another field in table B that references that field and so on and so forth. You can get into a situation where FileMaker would start spinning its wheels trying to keep evaluating uh, and, and chasing down every rabbit hole where all the data lives. And so the... Uh, the decision at some point in the history of FileMaker, the decision was made to, hey, no, we we do, we are breaking the, the dependency tree at the boundaries of the current record. Uh, any any reference data that exists outside of this current record uh, will, for one thing, uh, will force that calculation to be unstored. I'll talk about that a little bit in, in a moment. But also uh, falls outside the dependency tree of this calculation field. So uh, it, it, it makes for an, a neat breaking point, um, but it also causes some headaches. Um, and you, you have to do things uh, sometimes uh, in your interface to force the calculation to be reevaluated, to be updated, so it doesn't get stale. That's interesting because I, I asked that question. I thought I knew the answer, and I didn't. <laughs> I, I, I was absolutely wrong, although I think my answer was somewhat right. But that, you just opened up my eyes to a whole other reason for it. But my, my, uh, tell me what you think. It could be a speed issue too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because if, if FileMaker starts spinning its wheels doing this long evaluation, it could, it, uh, it could, the, the user's going to be sitting there with an hourglass or a spinning wheel on their screen while that happens. And uh, that, that's not good. We don't want that. So yeah, absolutely. Performance is an issue. Uh, I, I imagine uh, the, the programming behind the scenes would be far too complex uh, if they wanted to add every single potential thing that could affect the calculation into its dependency tree. Uh, I, that list is huge. Um, I imagine much much bigger than than at first blush you might think it is, um, and so I I imagine also it's a monument it would have been a monumental task to program it and uh, like any company like any project the engineers at FileMaker they're on a, a schedule uh, you know there's a new version that's coming out and uh, we want it done by this date and so they don't have time to scurry down every single rabbit trail to figure out 
to the nth degree, how is this going to work? They, they, and I think they've done a, a very admirable job, all things considered. I think, I think FileMaker works very well, all things considered. And all of this talk reminds me of a story where there's a situation where we had a very large system with a ton of calculations that we inherited from some customer. And their complaint was, gosh, it takes so long to create a new record. You know, because in every situation, new record is blindingly fast, right? New record, new record, new record. But it's probably and was, in fact, caused because they had so many calculations that it had to evaluate before the record could really be established. So when you run across a situation where you have, why is it so slow to create a new record? Well, it's probably because you got a bunch of calcs happening. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, in the same way, if you uh, if you create a new record and it's fast, but then you enter a value in a field and that feels the key for triggering massive amounts of lookups, same kind of thing can happen. It, you'll, you'll, you'll get a spinning wheel while it sits there and processes while it does the lookup or whatever. Same kind of thing. It's, uh, but if it's on record creation when it's, when it's happening and it's taken a long time, that's probably calculations. Well, it comes back down to something that I keep saying, and John, John's adopted it too, just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. Yeah, just one last thing on this whole thing about performance. I, I we're kind of getting off subject, but I, I remember a client uh, in LA that I had, and they called me in because uh, this layout was really slow. And so what I did was I duplicated the layout, started taking things off to see what was slow, and I finally you know narrowed it down to a particular set of fields. And this field was an unstored calculation referring to an unstored calculation referring to an unstored calculation referring to it. I mean, it just went on. I was I was in disbelief how far it went down. And I replaced it with one unstored calculation that referred to the way down the line. But you've got to watch out uh, what you're doing um, with this performance with calculations for sure. Well, I'll give you an example. Darren, I'll give you an example that you might find amusing. I was working um, in Colorado for a, a government think tank doing some programming, and they had a solution there that was developed by somebody, and it was painfully, painfully, painfully slow. And my job was to figure out why it was so slow and, and fix it. And I looked at the code, and I ran this very complicated script, and I ran the debugger to see what was going on. and he was calling the same script over and over and over and over again in different time. Every time he went from one point to another, he called the same script and ran this error check. And I said to him, look, we, we're working in Golden. I want to go down to Golden. It's a five-minute drive. You go via Colorado Springs, which is two hours drive, and you do it a hundred times a day. And... People don't realize how badly they can screw up the performance of a system by being too clever. Yeah, I, I agree with that. that. That is very true. I've seen that many, many times. So, Darren, we talked. you were talking about stored calculations. They update when defined or redefined in managed database, when you create a new record, or when a local field reference changes. And are we ready to go on to when stored, unstored calculations update, or do you have some more to say about? Uh, no, uh, that, that uh, well, it's very simple. The, the stored calculation, those three things sound very simple, but they have ramifications. If, if you have a, a stored calculation field and the formula does not refer to a field in, in its own table, 
um, that calculation field will not update except for if you make a new record, it'll update for that record, or if you change the calculations formula in Manage Database. That's it. It won't update otherwise. So as an example, if you have a stored calculation with get found count in it, uh, at the moment it was defined, let's say there were 14 records in the found set. Well, that, that record's going to have 14. You go to the next record, that's going to be 14. You, you do another find, it doesn't update. The, the records that weren't in the found set have a blank value for that field and will continue to have a blank value in that field ad nauseum in perpetuity. I think I screwed that word up. Anyway, <laughs> but, but the idea is if you want it to update, you have to go and redefine the field or also make a new record. Making new records will cause it also uh, for that record only. So uh, it's, it's a bad idea to have a stored calculation field that, that references uh, anything without a single reference to a field in the same table. Uh, because there's no way to tickle that calculation to force it to reevaluate in browse mode, other than making a new record. Um, and that, include, that includes all, not get functions, the design functions, that includes tons and tons of stuff, um, including references to variables. Like if you, if you had a calculation field that was equal to double dollar var, you know, and that was it, uh, that formula, that, that field is never going to evaluate for any record in the database, uh, 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 except for if you, if you have a value in double dollar var, if that, if that variable is instantiated and you make a new record, it'll inherit the value from that var. But it's a permanent thing. It's set in stone for that record. It does not get updated even after you close the database and reopen it and double dollar var is no longer in existence, right? It's still going to have that value saved to disk for that record until you uh, redefine the formula for the calculation field. And that's an important thing to, to understand because that, that, causes, that can cause very unexpected behavior. Um, it, it's very common. I've seen many, many times people define a, a field and they call it today and it has get current date, but it's not unstored. It's a stored field and that doesn't work. That, that has the, the, the date that the record was created in it or the date that the field was defined in it, one or the other. And that's it. So Darren, some things force calculations to be unstored like global fields related fields, other unstored calculations, but some things don't, as you're saying, such as get functions, design functions, variables, they don't automatically force that to be unstored, but you should go in there and manually make it unstored in those situations. Correct. Uh, uh, if, if the formula of the calculation does not reference locally, locally stored data, then it, the field itself should be set to unstored. Otherwise, you can get unexpected results. And there's, that, there's four things uh, in FileMaker that will force a calculation to be unstored. And you mentioned three of them. If it re references related data, if it references global data, or if it references another unstored calculation field, those three things force it to be unstored. But the fourth thing is if it references a summary field, if it, if it references summary data, FileMaker will also uh, refuse to store the results of the calculation field. I think it's important to note that 
that even if we've been doing this for a couple of decades, there's always that little nugget of truth you'll find out by talking to somebody else. And that's one of the great reasons to go to a developer conference or read an article on a subject uh, that you already know about, because sometimes somebody says it a different way or throws in a different piece of information or, or whatever happens. And you, you fill out, you expand your knowledge on that subject. And don't, I, I think the, the thing is a lot of people, become close to learning and you got to remain open because they, you, you will never stop learning. So, okay. So unstored calculations, the dependency tree for an unstored calculation, uh, includes all three items from the stored calculation list. So, uh, they, they reevaluate on field definition or when it's redefined, they reevaluate on a new record creation and they reevaluate when locally referenced data changes. But there's a fourth dependency for unstored calcs that stored calcs do not have. And that is uh, an unstored calculation will reevaluate when it is redrawn on screen. And uh, that's a, a technical term, redrawn. That does not mean taking the window and dragging it off the edge of the, the screen and bringing it back onto the screen. That's not redrawing. Uh, Redrawing means issuing a refresh, like the refresh window script step, um, as an example. Um, so uh, one of the more common ways that a calculation field gets unstored is if it references related data. You have a, a invoice total, and it's equal to sum of the invoice line items extended price or whatever. And that field is sitting on the layout. And... Uh, Someone could be editing that related data, but not on this layout, somewhere else, on another screen from another client, for instance. They could be editing uh, that related data and make a change, and when they commit it, the, the subtotal on your screen will not update at that moment because the commit, the change of data to the related uh, table, does not trigger the update. That's out. That falls outside the, de the dependency tree. But if you were to click into that field, that summary field, or let me rephrase that, that unstored calculation field at the bottom of the invoice, it would immediately update because FileMaker uh, always redraws the contents of a field when you click into it. Um, so it, there's many reasons why it does that, but but that's that's a, a dependable behavior. So if you click into an unstored calc that has not yet reevaluated, it will immediately refresh at that moment, and that's that's a that's good to know. That's dependable behavior. Um, the other thing is if you issue a refresh window, that that also does it. Um, so oftentimes, what will happen is someone will they'll it'll be an invoice layout, for instance, and they'll be editing one of the line items in a portal up above, and they enter, you know, they change the quantity, and that changes the extended price for that line item. And then down below, uh, the subtotal updates immediately. And they think to themselves, oh, that updated because I changed the, the, the quantity here. And that's not why it updated. It updated because the related data is on the layout. That's why it updated. And FileMaker knows, oh, I have to refresh the screen because the related data changed because it's on this layout. And it was the fact that it refreshed the window that triggered the, uh, the unstored calculation to update. I, I know that's getting pretty technical and it's splitting some errors, but I hope that that makes sense to people that are listening to the, to the podcast. 
Makes sense to me. Yeah, and before you explore that idea further, because that needs some exploration, going back to the stored calc and why and why John said it's really important to make it unstored if you're using something like get found count. It's not because of anything fancy. It's simply because in an unstored calc, the redraw of the window will force the reevaluation, thereby giving you a correct found count. So it's that fourth criteria that makes the magic happen between why we choose a stored calc and an unstored calc. It's that fourth criteria. It's all about the window draw. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's some other important scenarios that update unstored calculations that I just want to spell out that you've kind of been, you know, saying, but I want to spell it out so so everybody can understand that an unstored calculation is going to, as soon as that calculation field comes on screen, such as when you change from one record to another, it's going to recalculate at that moment. When the layout is changed, same thing. When the mode is changed, you talked about that, Darian. And also it happens when you reveal something by scrolling down. Let's say you have a really long layout and it can't fill it all on the screen. You scroll down, the unstored calculation recalculates once you scroll down, not when it's off screen. Same thing with the tab controller or slide control. You can put an unstored calculation on a tab that's not the default and it won't recalculate until somebody clicks on that tab to reveal that information. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. That's absolutely true. Um, it is all about the window draw. When you do a find, um, and when you perform a find and the found set changes, FileMaker redraws the window. Uh, and that will, that will cause any unstored calculations on the screen, like found count or whatever, to update uh, on demand at, at that moment. So true. Or a popover is another example. A absolutely. Yeah. The, um, the FileMaker is very efficient in that way. It, it doesn't do unnecessary work. And if the calculation field is not being displayed, it doesn't need to reevaluate. Um, but the, the, the inverse is not true. So let, let me explain what I mean by that. If, if you had uh, a portal of related child records in a popover that was not revealed, it's closed. So it doesn't, you don't see it on screen, but it's on the layout. Uh, and someone edits one of those child records, um, that is going to cause an unstored calc that summarizes, say, those those related records. It'll update, even though the portal's not displayed, because the portal is on the layout. Hiding the related data by putting them in a tab panel or a slide panel or a popover, or even off the right-hand side of the layout, out in the, the gray, whatever you want to call that area, that does not prevent the unstored calculation from evaluating. Um, in fact, here's another thing that'll cause it. Um, if you had a portal on the layout, but no fields in the portal at all, a portal aimed at the child table that the calculation references, then changes to the child records, the data, will cause the unstored calc to update because the portal is on the layout. And the reason is, is because when... When data changes to the child table, um, even if it's not a field referenced in the calculations formula, it's some, it's some other field, but it's on the same record, the related record, FileMaker transmits the entirety of that record to you, to the client, on data change. And as a result, it has to refresh any references to that data, including a, an empty portal on the layout or a portal that's in a popover, or in a concealed slide panel. It's, 
it doesn't draw it, but it does have to refresh it for purposes of calculating things. So it, it's in this limbo state. It's, it's, uh, I had a Claris engineer, a FileMaker engineer at the time, uh, explain to me what, what we do is we download the model, but not the view. In other words, that it does the work to prep the object and get its data, but doesn't actually draw it to screen yet. But that can that's that is sufficient to trigger an unstored calculation to update. If if the unstored calculation is dependent on that data, makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I wanted to pass something by you um, that's kind of a similar situation that might help people to understand this. It's not it's not about calculations necessarily, but I think it's about how FileMaker views a a, a record or, or I should say a layout. Um, when you go to edit a, a layout or a record that's displayed through a layout and it has local fields and let's say a portal, if you decide to uh, revert that record, it not only reverts everything from the actual record, it reverts any changes that have not been committed in that portal as well. And I think that's kind of like the whole viewpoint of how Claris development team and the FileMaker development through the years, how they view how this thing works. They, the, the, if it's on that layout, all of a sudden it becomes part of that record. It's kind of a weird, strange thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And any changes that are being made before the commit, they're not transmitted to the server yet. Uh, they're, not, they're not sent up to the host, which means they, don't, they aren't disseminated out to all the other users yet. They're, they're stored in the local cache on the local machine until commit. So that means if I could be editing uh, an invoice and I could be deleting line items, I could be clicking into the portal and delete a child record and then delete the next child record. And then I could revert my changes, go to the records menu and choose revert record, hit yes. And those child records come back. They're, they're not permanently gone until you commit. And committing can happen in many, many ways. You could click off into the white part of the layout or the blank part of the layout. You could change records. You could change mode. There's all change layouts. There's tons of ways to do a commit. But there's but if you are intentionally not committing the record, you can revert it, and all changes, including child record deletions, get reverted. Which is why it's really important to to note that when you start editing portal records all the related records in that portal become locked for all other users. Right. And, and the parent does too. The parent record, if, you, if the first thing you do when you come to an invoice is start editing a line item, like changing its description, you are also locking the parent record. The parent invoice gets locked as well. There are things uh, outside of FileMaker that can cause a calculation to update also. Um, so uh, a calculation will update um, if, it, if it is referenced by something else. So as an example, if, if I had a, an unstored calculation field that was not on the layout and I had another unstored calculation field that used the first one in its formula and that one is on the layout and I refresh the window, the, the FileMaker is going to cause the, the displayed unstored calculation field to reevaluate and because the other field is in, in its in its uh, in its formula in, is referenced. FileMaker is going to reevaluate that referenced field also, as a result, because it it can't depend. Well, it might not have even evaluated that field yet. 
it, it, it can't depend uh, on the result, a formerly evaluated result of that field, because the data might have changed out from under it in the meantime. So it has to reevaluate right then and there. So that that extends not just to fields on the layout uh, that refer to other fields that are not on not on the layout. That refer that extends to whole, everything else, all the external stuff. So web publishing. Uh, if if a if a web page, if a PHP page makes a call and it references a a unstored calculation field, well, FileMaker has to evaluate the form the formula of that field and return the results to the web page. Uh, if there's an Apple script that's running and it queries FileMaker and uh, tries to grab the contents of an unstored calculation field, well, that Apple script will trigger that calculation field to update on reference. Uh, even if it's not even, no, it's not on a layout that any of the users are on yet. It's not even displayed anywhere. The fact that it's referenced and FileMaker needs to evaluate it to re return the result forces it to be updated at that moment. Uh, and and by the way, if it's an unstored calculation field, it's evaluated and then immediately discarded. Uh, FileMaker will return the result to the external, to the API call or to AppleScript or whatever it is that's that's querying it, and then immediately disregard the, the result and, and flush it. it. It's never written back to disk because it's unstored. In other words, people who might be on the system through a FileMaker client won't see those updates that's that's also that's correct. So, just in, let me ask a question here. On the insert menu, you can insert symbols, and you have the option right. to insert an other symbol. And one of those other symbols is found count. Now, when you're right. putting that on a layout, is that by its nature unstored, as opposed well, to creating a field that you then have to set to be unstored? Well, it, it depends on what you mean by unstored. Uh, the the symbol itself and its contents, the the text object that you're saving to the layout is stored, and uh, all of those uh, other symbols that you can insert, like found count or page number or whatever, those are all the, those are all the contents of the get functions. So get found count, uh, get account name. You could put account name in curly brackets at the bottom of a layout, and FileMaker will evaluate it and display the account name. Now, it's not storing the account name, but it is storing the reference to it. It's it's storing the formula of that text object where it says account name in curly brackets. But the result of it is evaluated at runtime and never stored. Uh, so if, if, you put, if you insert the found count uh, symbol, on a layout uh, at runtime, as the found set changes, you know you perform finds or add records or delete records or omit records. Um, as the found set is changing, uh, that that value in that text object in browse mode is going to update dynamically, and it's not being saved to disk. It, it behaves as if it were an unstored calculation field. I hope that makes sense. So is is that actually? Yes, it does. But is that? Is that a better way of having the found count on the layout to use a, a variable, other symbol like that, as opposed to going in creating a, a field, calculation field, to get you that result, get found count, and then remembering to make it unstored? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, it's 
I, better is a, a relative term. I, I, I'm sure there's people that prefer one way over the other and vice versa. Um, I per- personally, um, it, using the symbol on the layout uh, eliminates the need for a field defined in the schema. And, and that's, to me, to my personal viewpoint, I think that that's uh, an advantage. I think that's a good thing. Uh, the fewer fields you have defined in a, in a file, the better, uh, in my opinion. But as far as impacting, you know, like the size of the database, uh, it makes no difference because in neither case is the data stored on disk um, or, say, performance. Uh, it makes no difference because FileMaker is invoking the same calculation engine to evaluate both, whether it's a symbol on in a text object on the layout or it's a calculated unstored field that's put on the layout. FileMaker is doing the same work. So it's, it's not a performance boost, nor is it a... Uh, size of the database hit in, in either case. It's it's it really is a matter of preference. Do you do you get into the habit of putting that text object on the layout and inserting the symbol, or do you get in the habit of defining an unstored get found count field? Now, there are other reasons to have an unstored get found count field other than just displaying the found count on the layout. Um, it's it's an a extremely effective way to determine if there are any related records. So if if in a invoice solution, if your child table has a field called found count or whatever you want to call it, and the formula is get found count and it's unstored, from the parent side, you can you can look at that field and see what the number is. And FileMaker evaluates it from the context of the relationship not the found count in that table on a layout somewhere. So if there's three line items, uh, from the parent's perspective, from the invoice's perspective, it, it's going to return the number three and see if that number is greater than zero, then I have at least one related record and I know that there's a related record. And that's an extremely effective and also extremely fast way to determine if there are child records or not. Because it's not referencing data. It doesn't require the server to push the child record or records down the pipe to the client in order to evaluate. Follow me? Yeah, absolutely. So really what you're saying, and I think I'm correct here, is that if you want to count up the number of related records, you could use an aggregate function count, or you could just reference that get found count unsorted calculation field in the other related table. Correct. You could do both. Uh, one's going to be an order of magnitude faster than the other. Uh, the get found count in the child table is much, much faster than using in the parent file a, a field that says count of related field. And the reason it's faster is because the count of the related field requires FileMaker to download that field's contents for every re- every child record, which FileMaker cannot do that. It can't just send one field's worth of data. It sends the entire table. It sends every field, uh, put an asterisk there, there's a there's a uh, one exception, but it sends all fields uh, for every child record down to the client to let the client evaluate that uh, count of related ID or whatever you whatever that field is. And that's monumentally slower. I mean, it, if there, if we're only talking two records, it's a blink of an eye and it doesn't seem that much slower. But if we're talking 
tens of thousands of records, we're it's it's a monumentally slower way to do it. Uh, referencing a related uh, get found count unstored calc is virtually instantaneous and, and, and much, much faster. It's a much more efficient way to do it. Um, the, real quick, the, the asterisk I, I put in there, I put a pin in, in what I was saying. The one exception, so when, when you uh, put a related field on a layout, like in a portal, FileMaker downloads not just that field, but every field in that table for that related record all the way down to the client. And the only exception is uh, container fields that are not currently displayed on the layout. Uh, for container data, FileMaker server does not push the container data down to the client unless it's displayed. But every other kind of field, all the number fields, uh, date fields, every, all the rest of the, the, the row uh, is pushed down to the client just so you can get one single field's worth of data to display. So what it comes down to, a, a, just to summarize what you said, because that, that was incredible information, um, but it to, to answer in, in one or two sentences what Michael asked, it comes down to, should I use get found count in a calculation or should I use it uh, inserted as a symbol? And it comes down to how are you using it? If you just want to have a found count displayed on the layout, use the symbol. If you really need to use it in a calculation, do some other stuff with it, then you should use a calculation. There, there are two different ways of using the same function. And I think that's what it kind of comes down to. Exactly. And um, uh, it doesn't really hurt uh, to have an unstored calculation in your schema and not reference it, not put it on a layout. It doesn't hurt to have a get found count unstored calc in, in a, a table. And the reason it doesn't hurt is because uh, it doesn't get evaluated until it's needed, until it's drawn on screen, or until. Uh, and until it's referenced in another field, essentially. If it's behind the scenes, it's not stored, so it's it's not sending data back up to the to the host. So there's no network traffic involved, uh, as far as that's concerned. Um, and it, it it doesn't really have an impact on performance or on storage. So there's no real reason not to do it with a calculation field, as long as you remember to make it unstored. That's that's the key. And I can understand there are people, many people that believe, no, no, just put the symbol on the layout and that's, that's easier because I don't have to think about it. I don't have to worry about the storage options. I don't have to think about the the data type of the calculation result. You know, make it number or text. Is there a difference there? I don't know, but that kind of thing, right? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, 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 it's much simpler just to type, uh, start typing a text object and then insert other other symbol and have found count show up there. That just makes it's faster and it's easier, but it, it might not meet all of your needs. Very so. interesting. Well, one of the one of the reasons that I use the fields is because on every list view I've got on every table I've got get found count. I've got field called FC for get found count and RC for total record count. So on a list view I'm displaying the found records out of the total records. And the reason that that's useful is not only can you see exactly how many records you're looking at, but until when the found count is equal to the total record count, the show all button is hidden. And it only appears when the found count is less than total record count. So it makes it easier for the user to, to know what's going on. And, oh, there's a show all. So that's where I like 
fields rather than the symbols, which I haven't used, but I was curious as to whether there was any real value to them. And Yeah, I, I find uh, I, I use symbols sparingly, mostly only in printed reports at the bottom, like in the footer. Uh, I, I'll put like the current date uh, and maybe like a uh, record number out of record. Uh, I mean, uh, a page number out of total page count and there is no get total page count function. So, so I have to go to preview mode, go to the last page, put that page number into a variable and then display that on the, on the layout. But other than that. Well, there is now, they have changed that in FileMaker 19. It was one of those little things that. Oh, I there's a new, a new it. function. Um, you now. Get, yeah. Gives you the total record uh, count. Total. To- Total page count? Total page Beautiful. Count. That's good to know. I, I, <laughs> I've been doing it so long the old way that uh, I, I'm not going to go retrofit all my solutions, but that's good to know that's, that you can do that now. That's Yeah, that's there's nice. actually a symbol and a function, which is great. Perfect. That's cool. Yeah, it's funny. How long, I mean, even when we worked in tech support, we were asking for the total page count function, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we've been asking for it forever, and finally, you know, what, 15, 20 years later, we finally get that feature. Yeah, well, that's, that's okay. How long did we wait to be able to insert a field into a tab order? Yeah, right. Yeah. Or, yeah, there's many, many. Uh, we, we could go down that rabbit hole. Let's... <laughs> so just to get back and say one more thing, I've been, I've been waiting patiently and uh, trying to say this. The only caveat I have uh, about declaring a field that has no performance, like you said, a, a, an unstored calculation for get found count. The only a caveat I have is it clutters up managed database. So there's more there, more to look at it. It's not a performance issue, but it, it clutters it up. And, and that's why I try to, to use the symbols as often as I can whenever possible. I, I agree with that. Uh, I understand that. And I agree with that. Um, but, but there's a trade-off. Um, if, if, if the performance boost of determining the uh, the number of related records by way of an unstored get found count in the child table. If that performance boost uh, is ex- is big enough, it noticeable enough, then it's worth the clutter. I I totally agree, and and I I was not uh, aware of that particular technique, and uh, I like it a lot. Um, I'm just saying there's one little thing to consider on top of that. Is is the cluttering up of managed database, which you know you're looking at more stuff. Yeah, uh, true. It's it just clutters up, so you can't find what you're looking for. And but if you need it, you need it, right? Use yeah, it. Absolutely. If it can give you performance gains, use it. I totally agree. Just I, I try to teach people in my classes and my you know when I'm writing articles and things like that. It's like use things when they're you know the way they're designed use way use them uh, in the in the proper way don't just be a one trick pony and go oh i'm going to use execute sql for everything because i know <laughs> it you know try to try to learn filemaker and and really understand it it'll help you design better solutions i totally agree with that that's great so we're, i think we're moving on to um formulas in uh layout mode um sure. well that's why i described them but Calculations are attached directly to objects. Like uh, I think the first one we have listed here is conditional formatting. What, what are your thoughts on on you know the dependency tree and and conditional formatting? Any other layout object you want to get into? Sure. Uh, let's talk about conditional formatting because it's one and 
I'll, I'll bring up another one uh, that that is very similar to it. Uh, uh, but first, conditional formatting works exactly like I want want it to work. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's it. it, it uh, I have never been able to make it break. So conditional formatting, uh, as an example, let's say you had a field that turns bold and red uh, when a when a number field has the number one in it, like a Boolean. Um, and you click into that number field and you type the number one. Uh, as soon as you type that number one, without a commit and without a refresh, that other field will turn bold and red immediately. And it doesn't matter if the Boolean is a local field or a related field. It doesn't matter. It updates on the fly immediately on data change without commit and without refresh. And I think that is awesome. I, I love that. Um, so it, it behaves like uh, unstored calculations, but on steroids, because it, it doesn't require you to tickle the field with a refresh, and it does not require a commit. Um, so it's, it, it, it's, it's, I think it's beautiful. That is very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because I don't use conditional formatting that often. You you love it. I, I can't even remember the last time I did. What, what Are there some common examples you can give the audience to say how you would use? Because hide object, no problem. I use that left and right all over the place. Yeah. And, and that's the other thing that behaves just like conditional formatting is hide object. Hide object reevaluates and redraws instantly without a commit and without a refresh. So if... Another example, that same portal. Let's say I had a portal, and I'm hiding the portal if a Boolean is true, if a number field has one in it. As I click into that number field, I type the number one, and that portal goes away immediately without a refresh, without a, without a commit. And, and uh, it behaves just like conditional formatting, and I love that. I think that's brilliant. Um, the, the Conditional formatting is very, very useful for a, a number of things. Uh, I, I have a solution for one of my clients that they have a report and they, it's a bunch of numbers, you know, uh, tracking performance of various projects or whatever. And uh, they have in a, uh, a one record global table, not global fields, real fields, but in a single record related table, they have fields that are uh, uh, performance metric benchmarks. They, they, if, if, the, if, the, if the sales number drops below this amount, that's a problem. But if it goes above this amount, that's a good thing. And so I have conditional formatting on the on the sales figure field so that if it drops below the related global benchmark field, then it turns red. But if it, it goes above the other benchmark field, the good benchmark field, then it turns green. And so they can look at a glance at the report and, uh, and see, oh, wow, that, that project's doing great. This project's we got to put more effort into because it's red, right? Uh, and I realize I picked red and green off the top of my head, and that's that's bad because you know what what is it one one in ten people are colorblind and, and can't see the difference. So I would I would really choose two different colors to 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 do that personally. Blue probably like blue and yellow or something like that. But in any event, uh, you can use conditional formatting on the fly like that to 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 give an added dimension to your reporting. Now, let me ask you this, because there's actually two ways to do that, right? Oh, yeah. You can do it 
with conditional formatting, but you also could have used the text formatting functions right inside whatever formula we're using. Or are you talking about summary fields or just, I'm just asking this question sure. to play, you know, the, the devil's advocate here, I guess. I, I've, I have a quick answer for that, guys. Yeah, with the conditional formatting, you get the fill color option, which is something you can't do with text formatting. Yeah, I was just going to say that. And, and that's, where, that's where it falls down because, you know, when you format text to a different color, it isn't always immediately obvious. Where I use conditional formatting all the time is where I want a field to have a value. And if it's empty, it shows in red. And I don't want to put that in the schema and, and force it to be entered. I want just to draw people's attention to the fact that they need to put something in that field. Yeah, I totally agree. That's another very common use on my own. I do the same thing. Uh, call attention to required fields. Um, if, if the field's not required and it's empty, I, I usually don't do that. But, but if it's a required field that, that the data depends on for validity, then I, I do that. Yeah, I think it's important to note that that uh, what I was trying to get at, um, and we got, and that's the great thing about having all these people talking because there's all different reasons to do something. But what I was getting at was that when you do it inside the calculation field inside of Manage Database, it's everywhere. No matter where you put that field, if you're in conditional formatting, then it's only for that report, and you can use that formula somewhere else and have it not turn red and green or whatever colors you decide. True, but the, there, there's another. There's a uh, added implication to that. Um, if if you are using uh, the text formatting functions in the formula of the calculation, uh, then you are altering the data. The text formatting is applied to the data itself, as opposed to the text formatting is being applied to the the field object on this layout, which does not affect the data. And that may or may not have implications. Um, most of the data export formats that FileMaker uses strip out formatting. So if you export out to Excel, you're, you're going to lose the formatting anyway. But if you export file to a FileMaker file, uh, the, the text formatting is, is preserved. So you would get that text formatting in the export as opposed to if, if it was conditional formatting on a layout, there's no formatting applied to the data itself. Yeah, that, that was kind of what I was getting at. It's the same idea as changing your text in browse mode and not in layout mode. It changes it and overrides the layout settings so that if you have a, a contact uh, database and you have one layout that you want to display it in plain text and then you want to print out uh, some labels, it's going to come out in every place in that exact same font characteristics. So conditional format, you need to realize, is a layout-based, not schema-based. And there's a big difference between doing things schema versus layout-based. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing people don't realize about conditional formatting is you can, you can apply more than one conditional format to the same object. And uh, there's an uh, add button in in the dialog, uh, and uh, every single one of them is calculated. It's it's a boolean thing. If this test is true, then the conditional formatting is applied. If this test is false, then it is not applied. And you people you might not realize that it it is invoking the calculation engine because uh, there's a simplified interface where you could choose by calculation or not and. Uh, you could say if value is less than X and just type X in there. 
But that really is translating behind the scenes to a calculation function, a calculation formula, and it really is invoking the calculation engine. And, and the result is a Boolean test. Is it true or not? And if it's true... Sorry, Darren, is that uh, the order in which the conditions are entered, is that the order that they're evaluated? Yeah, from top to bottom. And, 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 they're all, and they are all evaluated. It, it, there's no short-circuiting. So if the first condition is true, FileMaker applies that conditional formatting. Then it goes on to the next condition. And if that is true, it applies that formatting on top of the previous formatting. So, for instance, if you had a field and it was conditionally formatted to go bold if some other field was empty, and then you added to that, it goes red if a second field is empty. If both of those fields are empty, then you're going to get bold red. Now, what happens if you try to change it on the first condition to green and on the second condition to red? Uh, the, if, if, they both, if the conditional formatting for two different conditions uh, make the same kind of change, like text color, only the last one, the bottom most one that is true, will win. It doesn't, it doesn't blend the colors. Uh, it, you're overwriting the, uh, the, that formatting. But if the, if the conditional formatting are not of like kind, if one of them is for bold and the other one is for a background color, then they stack and they, they both apply. I hope that makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. Yeah, it does. I think that might be a certification question somewhere in there. <laughs> <laughs> it, could, it may well be. So just as an aside, Mark, one of the really useful um, uses for conditional formatting is I've got a client who has, they do tests on fuel samples, and the results are either good, bad, or indifferent. And each of those conditions is a different color. So when they're looking at a report, they see red columns, red numbers, and green numbers, and yellow numbers. Um, or yellow backgrounded numbers rather to give them so that they can instantly see oh these results are really good and these results are really bad so that's that multiple conditions in the conditional formatting box yeah it, yeah and there's other examples of that too like for instance a calendar a calendar might have a text red representing one type of category but then the background fill could be another uh, status so you can mix status and category in the same data at the same time, one being a fill, one being a background. So what about placeholder text? That's one of those ones I'm guessing works a lot like conditional formatting and hide object. Uh, yeah. So placeholder text is super simple. Um, it, it, it really has, uh, well, I guess it's not super simple because you could, you, you could have really a really complex formula to, to generate the placeholder text. Um, so play, play, first and foremost, placeholder text, uh, will disappear the moment you type something into the field that it's applied to. Um, so it disables the, the evaluation and, and makes it go away as soon as there's something there. Um, but other than that, I believe that placeholder text follows the same rules as, as conditional formatting in that if there's a change to reference data, um, it the the placeholder text will update immediately. It's, that's fine. Uh, the placeholder text will update immediately, and I believe it does not require commit. I think it's just like conditional formatting. Now, bear with me. I haven't tested that in a long time, and I'm going on old memory here. 
but I, I, I'm pretty sure that's correct. And let's see, we have tooltips also. Tooltips are a uh, <laughs> interesting thing. They're, they're, it's not really a dependency tree. It's like a, a dependency telephone pole. There, they, there's only <laughs> one thing. <laughs> there's only one thing that causes a tooltip to evaluate, and that's on hover. Um, and uh, it, it changes to, if you're not hovering over a field that has a tooltip or an object that has a tooltip applied to it, um, uh, it, it never evaluates. It won't evaluate even if reference data changes because there's no reason to. It, it, it only evaluates when it needs to display it, and it only needs to display it on hover. Now, the one thing to, to understand about tooltips that most people don't realize, you know that when you when you hover over a field that has a tooltip applied to it, there's a delay. It's a couple seconds, and then you get the tooltip, right? But what people don't realize is that the the formula for that tooltip has been evaluated instantly on hover. It, it's not deferred until draw time. Uh, the drawing of it is deferred, but the evaluation happens immediately on hover. And that's important to realize because you could do some, some tricky stuff with, with uh, tooltips. You can, if you have a plugin that, that can call a script, like zip script or whatever, um, you can trigger a script of fire by passing your cursor over a field or over an object. Um, and it happens instantly. It doesn't wait to, to draw the tooltip that would have been displayed. It, it happens instantly on hover. Right. In, in long ago, before there were very many, before there were any script triggers, we had to use this trick all the time, you know? <laughs> so Right. So it was one of the main ways to get stuff done, right. It. It's interesting to note that uh, that you know that you can still use a plugin in that fashion to provide a script trigger that FileMaker doesn't have built in. Right, right, yeah. There is no on hover uh, script trigger that I'm aware of, unless they added it in 19, and I don't know it yet. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> in FileMaker, in modern FileMaker, there's actually two separate things that can give you an on hover event, uh, and tooltips is one of them. Uh, the other one is you can do the same thing with a web viewer. Um, so, which it's a good segue to talk about web viewers. Um, so web viewers ha uh, have a, a little bit more complex uh, of a dependency tree than, than tooltips do. Uh, they evaluate when the layout is first drawn or if it's refreshed. If you refresh the layout, the web viewer, uh, if, it, if the web viewer is displayed, it will refresh just like an unstored calc. Um, it also re uh, it also refreshes if referenced data changes, and if it's local data, it refreshes immediately. But if it's related data, it refreshes on commit. Or uh, or e either commit or refresh. Refresh window will trigger it even without a commit. One one or the other. Um, if the web viewer is set to be interactive. That's a checkbox in the manage or, or specify web viewer dialog, whatever they call that dialog these days. There's a checkbox for allow interactive content. Uh, and if that's set, then a web viewer will uh, reevaluate on mouse in and mouse out. So, uh, it, and that's two separate events. So that can give you uh, the effect of an on hover, kind of. It's not really on hover, it's on mouse in and out, out on mouse out. But you could also you could use that if you have a plugin. You could use that to trigger scripts. So it's that's a useful thing. Actually, you don't even need a plugin these days to do that because with 19 and and the new JavaScript capabilities, you could call a Java you could call a FileMaker script 
with JavaScript that's in a web viewer, and you can refresh that web viewer by mouse in. So that, 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 that's kind of useful. Our world keeps expanding, right? It really does. Uh, oh, and the other thing that could cause a web viewer to, to refresh uh, before we get off that topic, uh, if you anchor the web viewer uh, so that it, it grows with the window as you resize the window, uh, it refreshes once per pixel that you resize the window. Excuse me, not pixel, per point that you resize the window. Uh, so if you if you click and drag, and you make the window an inch wider, so that's you know ninety six points added or whatever it is, it will refresh. It it will queue up the refreshes. It won't do the refresh as you drag, but it will refresh. It will queue them all up and refresh them all on mouse up when you're done. And that's important to understand because you might be doing things like triggering a script <laughs> in your web viewer, um, and that that could cause some issues if you're if you're not careful. He had 96 times the same script, right? Exactly. <laughs> you can also force the refresh of a web viewer by setting the web viewer. You know, there's a script step to set the web viewer to reload or reset. So you can actually, it's kind of like a refresh window, but it's a specific feature in the set web viewer script step. And that's only if you have interactive checked, though. Right. Absolutely. You can do that. Um, and and uh, you're absolutely right, Mark. Um the, uh, it, it does have to be interactive in order for the web viewer to uh, refresh on window resize if it's anchored. So, per, yeah, good to know. Uh, learn something new every day. Uh, <laughs> uh, and obviously, if, if the web viewer's formula depends on uh, data in a field and you change the data in the field, uh, it's going to force that web viewer to update. And if that data is local, it'll update immediately. Uh, but if, the, if that data is related... Uh, I believe it, it requires a commit. Um, I could test that also, but in, in, in any event, uh, it, it's uh, it's safe to assume that uh, the web viewer, you're, you're going to need to tickle it a little bit if the data isn't in the same table, um, either with a refresh or with a with a uh, commit. Yeah, I think an important thing to to note here is that you know you can figure these things out yourself in FileMaker. It's more us. You know, we can give you the details and, and Darren knows tons of them, trust me. But if Darren goes, I can't remember what happened, what does he do? He goes and makes a sample database and tests it out to see what happens. So what you really need here is the awareness that certain things, you have a general awareness about, you know, because we've given a lot of information here. And so if you're going, oh my God, I can't remember all this, you don't have to remember. You have to know how to test it and you know have to know what you can test. And that's the most important thing is just realizing that there are these issues or maybe not issues, these, these ways of, of updating the dependency tree and when it updates and, and just be aware of them and make sure that if you're doing something along those lines, check it out first. Don't assume it's going to work that way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, this, this is also one of the, the, the great things about FileMaker is that it's so fast to test stuff that you think might be one way or the other. And so the feedback in terms of developing is in, it's just mind-boggling. I just wish they'd let us take FileMaker into the certification test because it seems like every question needs a test. <laughs> <laughs> well, to me... Uh, to be fair, you know, I think they, they should allow you to go on the internet uh, for the certification test because in in the real world, if you're 
if your if your database is crashing and you're trying to figure it out, you have the internet. You know, you have you have access to all that information. And uh, if you're installing FileMaker Server, you have the internet and you can look up the system specs and all that. I I don't know. I I don't want to be critical of Claris and their decision making, but it's uh, it seems to me kind of foolish to try and make people do this purely on memory, especially as the project evolves and there's more and more and more to remember with each each new version. Well, the, the good news is I. And before we start going down that hole, um, I think the good news is I think they are rethinking the certification test. So who's a better developer? Some guy who's memorized everything or some guy who knows how to find out the answers really well? Oh, that's good. That's good to know. I mean, seriously, it's it's an honest thing. And then I think uh, the certification test uh, could be changed. And I don't think we're we're harping on Claris because this is the way everybody does their tests. But let's get back into the, you know, do we need to memorize? Uh, one of the things that bothers me on because we're on this, and, and I don't know who brought it up, but it's your fault. So one of, the, one of the questions that bothers me is about script triggers. If you run a script trigger that uh, three script triggers at once, which one's going to fire first? Which one's going to fire last? I mean, you know what? If I'm going to fire three script triggers, I'm going to look it up inside the online help and find out to see which one's going to happen. I'm not going to memorize. There's no point in doing that. Yeah, or or even in the product. Yeah, e even in the product, if you right click on a field and sh choose uh, script triggers, uh, they they fire from top to bottom. Um, so they, it's it, it's you could just look and you don't have to remember that you know on record load lo fires before this or you know you, you could just go look at it and wait 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 we need to reverse there. You just told me a little nugget of truth. I've always been looking in the online help, but you're saying inside the dialogue, the way their orders, the way they fired, that is so cool. Yeah, yeah, they, they were smart. The engineers at FileMaker were, were smart when they put that dialogue together because they, they do it from in order from top to bottom. It, it, it's uh, it's kind of cool. It's very cool. I did not know that, never thought about it, and now I'm putting it down in the nugget of truth uh, storage area, so. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, I'll forget Darren told me. I'll come, I'll just say it was me, so. Yeah. There's going to be a Darren Terry section. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. So it's uh, the order is. Um, can I widen this? Ah, I can widen this. Great. Uh, so it's on object enter fires first, then on object keystroke, then on object modify, then on object validate, then on object save, then on object exit, and then if it's a a panel, it's on a panel switch fires next. But it, that's only if it's a panel, and then finally on object AV player change. The only caveat to all this is that it gets more complex when you introduce the layout script triggers, because um, it's True. a whole other list in a sense, you know, and, and they like to commingle that on the test questions. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that is very true. You're right. And that's where you'd have to go to the online help, which has them all listed, regardless of whether object or layout or open script or, or the funky one in uh, the install on timer script, the one that's, I don't yeah. get out the script trigger, but... <laughs> Yeah, but we are coming. We're coming back down to my fun, fundamental problem with the with the certification exam. And John and I have done a podcast on this. I don't see the point of learning memorizing stuff that I'm never going to need to know, except when I need to know it and I can look it up I then agree. and there. And it's just it's like it's a waste of my time and my energy to to memorize all this stuff. Yeah, not only that, it, it's more valuable, I think, 
from Claris's perspective, I, I would imagine it, be, it would be more valuable to know that this person uh, is capable of figuring out an answer to this problem rather than already knows the trivial nugget of truth to, to, to fix this problem. Follow me? And I, I think that's a, that it gets back to what John Mark's, what your question was earlier. But uh, is, is it better to have all the trivial knowledge in your head or is it better to know how to figure it out? Um, I, I, I think it's better to know how to figure it out. I think that's a, a more valuable skill, personally. If you had to choose one, right? Right, if I, if I had to choose one. I mean, we obviously memorize a lot of stuff and it's helpful so we don't have to look it up, but do we have to memorize everything? Right. 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 So let's move on to uh, what I've been trying to talk about uh, or been looking forward to talking about, which is how filtered portals yeah. react in this dependency tree. Because I'm really, I don't know much about how they react, so I'm, I'm interested in this. Sure. Um, okay, so filtered portals. Um they behave almost like conditional formatting does, in that uh, they uh, you you don't have to worry about um, the, the the portal filtering itself after you make a change to the dependent data, whatever that data is. So, for instance, if you had a if you had a portal that was showing line item records from a child table, uh, and you had like a boolean field at, at the top with one and zero as radio buttons, say. And there's a corresponding Boolean in the child table, one or zero. And some records have one, some records have zero. And you filter the portal to say that the parent Boolean matches the child Boolean. So that when you have one checked on the parent record, only the records with one showing are in the portal and vice versa. You don't really have to worry about it very much. You, FileMaker takes care of it for you. But there are a couple things to know. And one of those things to know is this. When a portal filter references a field and that field data changes, the portal will not update until one of two things happens. Either the data gets committed, so you need a commit record step, or the window's refreshed. You can... You don't have to commit the data if you use a refresh window step. And you don't have to refresh the window if you use a commit re record step. O one or the other is sufficient. And both obviously will work. So in browse mode, I, I, I could go into, I have a sample database that I can also make available that was from DevCon a long time ago. But I have a layout with a filtered portal and, I, and you could flip the the radio button back and forth and see the records update. But they don't update until you click out of the field or until you click the refresh window button that's on that layout. And But both things cause it to update, either the refresh or the commit. And, oh, and one other thing. Um, if, the, if the portal's filter depends on a global field in order to evaluate, then you must use a refresh, even after a commit. It won't update automatically. You have to kick it into gear with a refresh. So the common example of that would be a, a global field with a pop-up menu or a checkbox above the portal right. that actually filters that portal to say, hey, show me only these records or show me only these records. Exactly. Exactly. Show, show me you're going to need a script trigger on that global field that you're changing to refresh the portal. Otherwise, changing that global will not update that calculation on that filter portal. 
And that's correct. Um, but if it was not a global, if it was a local stored field, uh, then changing it would cause an update uh, as soon as either the record was committed or the window was refreshed. So, but the the upshot is if you're if you're using that kind of mechanism to filter a portal where the user is picking something to switch back and forth between sets of related data, like completed invoices versus in process or something like that, it, it's a good idea to attach a refresh window script step to a to an on object validate or on object save script trigger uh, on that on that filter field. So that you don't have to worry about it. it, it it just takes care of itself. Now you could also use a, a refresh object for that portal, or a yeah. refresh portal too. So um, you don't have to to redraw the whole screen. It may not be make a big difference, but I always try to err on the side of of you know speed and and efficiency. Right, like, and it makes a big difference, especially if you have multiple portals. So a refresh right. window will take a lot longer than just refresh portal. And that's uh, certainly and, true. Yeah, which is that's certainly true. It's a great new feature they added when they added. Yeah, it. I, mm -hmm. I like that too. So, one of the ways that I use um, portal filtering, and I'm sure that you guys have thought about it, is I've got a value list of options which are driven by the data it's in the related table. So, for example, uh, got a name table of contacts and the index field is the first letter of the last name and I have a value list attached to a global field which is called hmm. G index and that shows all the different index letters and you select one and it populates the portal with all the right. ones that match but if you haven't got any selected you want to be able to see all the records so I've got a custom function that says if the global field is empty use the value list items and if it's not use its value and that way i can do a whole series of validation and filtering before i get to the portal filtering where i'm actually looking for specific matches gotcha you well, okay the the other way you can do that the way uh the way i usually approach that is uh if the if the port if i want the portal to show all records when the filter is empty then the formula for the filter on the portal is uh, if the filter is empty, give me one. Otherwise, give me the contents of the field uh, of the filter matching on some field in the portal. Does that make sense? So, and, and if if the if the result of the filter calculation returns one or true, then all records will show up. Well, on a record by record basis, as they go, if the result is true, it shows up. It's not. It's not filtered out. So, uh, if if the formula is a simple one, that means it's true for every record in the portal, and they all show up. Yep, that's generally the way I do it, Darren. As well, um, just put a case statement in there and and result in a one yeah. if that global field is empty, and it it works. It works really well. I, I've never really explored other options. But I'm curious about something um, that I put down in the notes here. And, you know, I'm interested in your thoughts on this because before filtered portals, there were people mm -hmm. creating filters through relationships. And one of the reasons filtered portals came out was so we could unclutter the managed relationships area because everybody was making these filtered right. relationships, as they're called now. 
and they would be applied to a portal. But now you can put calculations on a portal. Uh, any thoughts? Uh, I'm, I don't have any specific question. I'm just curious about your thoughts. Do you ever use uh, a filtered relationship anymore? Or do you use all filtered portals? Do you have any thoughts on that at all? I know I'm putting a spot here, but. Well, that, that, that's fine. That's fine. Um, so uh, there are situations where I use filtered portals and there are situations where I don't. Um, one, one thing uh, that filtered portals can do for you with a small record set uh, is unclutter the graph and also improve performance because uh, the filtering happens uh, on local cached data. So when if, if the relationship was wide open, if it, if it was for this invoice, give me every line item for the, that matches the ID, but your portal was filtered with a pop-up at the top that said completed line items versus in process or something like that. When you go to the layout, FileMaker server is going to send all of the related data down to the client and it's going to be cached locally. And then as you filter the portal, you're working on locally cached data. So the, the for, portal filtering happens rapidly. But when you go to, when you navigate to the layout and that initial download, the speed of that download and the speed of uh, the layout becoming responsive after you navigate to it depends to a great degree on how many related records are being pushed down the pipe. If you had 50,000 related records and you're filtering to show only five of them, th that's very inefficient because FileMaker has to push those 50,000 child records down first before they can be cached, and then you're filtering the portal on locally cached data. In that case, it's much, much more efficient to change the relationship itself so that you're not pushing all those related records down. There's a, a more finite, smaller amount or smaller number of related records to push from the client from the server to the client if that makes sense absolutely makes sense and i it's interesting uh, one of the differences between a filter portal with a global filter versus putting that global field as a match field in a relationship is that the relationship updates without a script trigger and, and to refresh the portal. But again, more, more information about how this works is really, really intriguing about yeah. how you don't just, it's not just about the obvious things. You got to learn about how FileMaker works in the background. I, I, I found that fascinating yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. This is like an under the hood session. Yeah. Well, you know. there's, yeah, exactly. There's, there's, there's. I, I didn't, didn't mean to interrupt you, Mark. I apologize, but, um, but there, there is a, there is one consideration to make, um, and that is if, if you, if you base a relationship in the graph on an unstored field or an unindexable field like a global field or an unstored calculation field, um, that that renders that relationship one way, uh, from the parent. You can see the child records, but from the child, you cannot see that parent record because the relationship depends on an unindexable value, which, which means FileMaker can't do the relational matching. And that has an, another implication that has another impact to, uh, to using the database. That means if I'm, if my relationship from invoices to child to invoice lines, uh, is unstored on the invoice side. That means I can't do a find on child records. I can't type, I, I can't go to find mode and type a description into the description field in the portal. It, I, you can do that, but when you hit enter, 
FileMaker will say this this operation cannot be completed because the target is in an unrelated table. And you're you. I think the dialogue it says exactly that. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason it says that is because you you have to understand what is FileMaker doing. What are you asking FileMaker to do? When in find mode, you type a find criterion into a related field. What you're saying is, find me parent records that have this value in any of their child records, right? And in order to do that, FileMaker first goes to the child table and finds on that value. Then it uses the relationship, essentially an uh, extended go-to-related record, back from the child record, back to the parent. It projects, that's called projecting. It projects back to the parent to to render the found set. And the relationship is invalid in that direction. And that's why it throws that error. So uh, it it could be uh, great for performance to put a, a global or an unstored calc as a key for the relationship to limit how many related records are being pushed down every time you use it. But it also has impacts and uh, implications on how do you use the database going forward from that point on. It it might be more val- valuable to just have a, a simple equijoin with stored data on both sides and then filter the portal. Because then you could do the find on the related child data, if that makes sense. Oh, everything you make, everything you're saying makes sense. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, there's other advantages of putting the filtered relationships and creating additional table occurrences. Like if you're using that information within a script and you're needing to, you know, do on the fly calcs, you might find that you're already needing those relationships established. Sure. So then, if there's a performance advantage to your point about the fifty thousand records, you would simply, you could simply use the same relationship to draw the portal. And then what I like about that is ancillary calculations in the parent record, then calculate against the relationship that you've established, whereas a filtered portal does not. True. But then again, to Michael's point, you probably wouldn't want to use a lot of unstored calcs calculating yeah. data in your in your portal because that's bad for performance. But under the right conditions, all these things have to sort of play a part in the mix when you're making this recipe. Well, yeah, everything, everything in FileMaker is kind of a trade-off between performance and uh and usability, right? So, so it, it, something can be fast, uh, but bloat the database and and slow it down elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Like a, a find on a stored index field can be fast, but the the fact that that field is stored in index could slow down a sort later on or something, and, or and vice versa is also true. You could slow down the find by making the field unstored and unindexed, but that, that could trim down the size of the database. And now your backups aren't as slow or whatever. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's a balancing act, really. It really is. The, the great thing about Darren is he's old school. Uh, and I, I consider myself old school, Mark old school, and Michael's old, old school. Uh, yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> I, I guess I, I guess I'm Jew. <laughs> and what I mean about that is that is that you know we're all very happy to give our information away for free, 
Um, and you know, Darren's just like, you know, you, you ask him one question and you get stuff that he didn't ask for, but you're like, wow, mm. I, I didn't even know to ask that question. Um, so it's, it's, it's unbelievable stuff. And I know this is turning into a little bit more of like <laughs> Mark said, an under the hood session, but yeah, I, I think this is so worth it. And we're coming towards the end here. We have a few more things we want sure. to cover, uh, regarding dependencies. And I think, um, the one that. What I'm looking at here is, uh, you know, we're just looking what you might want to say about scripting and dependencies. Uh, sure. Well, scripting, okay, there's there are dozens and dozens of script steps that invoke the calculation engine. And it, it, it's not just, you know, the if step or the exit loop if. Uh, it's uh, set field and uh you know, the replace field content script step has, uh, you can invoke the calc engine there. And there's tons and tons and tons of them. They're, they're all over the place, scattered everywhere. The show custom dialogue has many, many different calculation in, uh, buttons that you can, you know, you for each of the individual button text, in each of the uh, the field labels of each of the, not the labels, but the, oh, I think you can, the field labels. Uh, anyway, there's the, the title of the dialogue and blah, 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 blah. There's all these different things. Uh, the send mail script step has many, many of them. So there's there's tons of script steps in FileMaker that can that where you can save a calculation formula. Uh, and so what's the dependency tree on these? Well, the dependency tree is very simple. It's on on runtime at runtime. Uh, FileMaker evaluates the formulas for the given active script step at the moment it is invoked as the script executes, uh, not before and not after. Um, so, and keep in mind, uh, this this might seem obvious, but it's worth stating that FileMaker executes a script from top to bottom, from step number one to the last step. Uh, it it doesn't do it out of order. Um, it, there there is no go to go to line. You know, there like there was back in my programming days with base, Basic. There was a you know go to command, and you could go to a different line in your program. The, FileMaker doesn't have that. The, what we do what we do have is if steps that can skip a section of code if if the formula is not true, um, and and we have subscripts, we could call a subscript and go and do something else, but it will return back to where we were unless that subscript halts the script, right? So for any given script step as it executes, FileMaker is going to evaluate all the formulas it needs, and that means that could trigger a whole bunch of stuff because the, the formula in a send mail script step might refer to unstored calcs that refer to other unstored calcs. So FileMaker has to go down to the root, evaluate it, so it can evaluate the intermediary one, so that it can evaluate the script steps formula, and that that can have performance implications, obviously. But uh, it, it it could also mean you have just refreshed a calculation that's on the layout and not have expected it to update itself after the script yeah. is done. Follow me, because because the script's going to force an evaluation of whatever it needs to do. What, whatever it's referencing, whatever it needs to do, that script is going to force all of that stuff to reevaluate. And it happens at runtime. So scripts are pretty straightforward then as far as the dependency tree then. Yeah, pretty, yeah. Uh, uh, here, Okay, but here's here's uh, an important thing to note. Uh, it, it, I just see a note in here um, uh, in our uh, our outline that um, if you have an unstored calculation field on a layout and it references a variable that is set by the script, uh, that calculation field 
does not update as the variable is changed. It, it, it requires, if you remember, the fourth item in the unstored calculations dependency tree is a refresh window. You have to refresh the window. You have to tickle that field uh, in order to cause it to update if you want it to update, even as the script is running. So you could have a set variable script step to update the variable. And then you can say, go to field. That'll do it because go to field puts the, ins the insertion point in that field blinking, and that causes the field to update. Or you can say refresh window if you want, or refresh object if you name the field as, a, as an object. That'll work also. Okay. A very interesting sub subject, uh, record level access, which is telling FileMaker which records you can view, edit, and uh, also delete, right? The only option it doesn't have is new, That's which correct. would make sense. The common example is uh, when right. you have, let's say, salespeople, and they're, you only want each salesperson to see their own records that they created, their own clients, let's say, and you compare the current yeah. account yeah. name to whatever account name created that record and say, don't show them this, this record. And so that's what record level access is. I don't know if you have a, right. a, a different explanation. It's always great to, to have more uh, examples or definitions. So, but tell us about the dependency tree and, and your thoughts on it. Well, uh, the good news is that uh, the record level access dependency tree, well, it, it's a little more complicated than, than that. It depends on how you've structured the formula um, uh, of the record level access. Uh, in the example you gave, if you if the formula is get account name equals creator, and that's the name of the field that has the auto enter account name, um, then that's simple. And uh, FileMaker will evaluate that uh, on a record by record basis. And uh, I'm going to admit a little bit of ignorance here. I don't know if it's FileMaker server that evaluates it before sending the data down to the client, or if it's FileMaker client that evaluates it after receiving it from the server. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I, I'm reluctant to even guess. But, uh, the, uh, but the point is, on a record-by-record -record basis, that gets evaluated as needed so that the, the end user, we can determine, do, do, do they have access or not? And if you had a, a script that let them re-log in, for instance, then they could go back to that found set and when the window's refreshed, it'll re-update. Or if they do a find, for instance, it'll re-update. Uh, now it'll, it'll be based on the new login that they entered, whatever that is. So uh, it, it, it's pretty reliable when you are referencing data uh, in the formula. Where it gets choppy is when you're not referencing data in, in the formula. And uh, for, as an example, let's say the login script sets a global variable to your account name. And now you're referencing that global variable instead of get account name. And let's say it's, you're not comparing it to a field that auto enters the creator account name. Let's say you're just saying if double dollar user equals and quotes John. Uh, that means that that person can create the record, or not create, can edit the record and view the record if, when they logged in, they logged in with an account named John. Well, that's going to get evaluated once for the entire file, and that, that happens at login. 
And it's not going to be evaluated on a record-by-record -record basis because no, no local data is referenced in the formula. And the problem with that is uh, you get really bizarre, unexpected results uh, in that kind of situation. And I, 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 I don't remember the exact circumstances. It was years ago. But I ran into a weird situation in the clients where people were seeing unexpected records and they were not seeing expected records. And it had to do with the way that I had constructed the record level access formula. And I, when I thought about it and I thought about it and I looked at it and I realized, oh, wow, I, I'm an idiot. I, I did it wrong. And when I corrected it so that it referenced local reference data in that table, suddenly it, it worked better and, and began working. So that, it's just a caveat, a, a beware, if you will, of, of uh, you, you can you can get really unexpected results if you're not careful. Yeah, gotcha. It might not make sense, right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, record level access is is a a very very cool feature, but it's it's tricky to set up if you're unfamiliar with it. And uh, there are a lot of resources out there on the internet. Just look up FileMaker record level access, and you'll get tons of white papers and whatnot talking about it. So it's it's a useful feature to to know. It's a useful tool to have in your tool belt. Yeah, it's, it's it, you got to be uh, wary of it because it can be taxing on the system, especially you're using it for on view, because right. it essentially puts an unstored calculation on every record that needs to evaluate now by itself. Not a big problem, but you start putting all these unstored calculations on a single layout, you know, with hide object and conditional forming, the list goes on and on, and you know, unstored calculations in managed database. You you might be adding that that one that breaks the camel's back. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Okay, we're winding down here, but we have a few things to say about uh, charting. Okay. Um, and I don't use charting a lot myself. Uh, yeah. I just don't find it that helpful. My clients don't ask for it that often, so I don't do that often. But hey, if you're using charting, this is probably a, a, an important section to, uh, to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I personally don't use FileMaker's internal charting all that much either. I have in, in relatively limited circumstances, uh, kind of simple uh, circumstances. So the, the charting object uh, evaluates it follows the same rules basically as uh, a filter portal uh, in that uh, if, if so charting is all uh, is based on data uh, that data can be derived from either the found set or it could be a comma separated list. Well, actually a, a separated list uh, in the current record, or it can be a related record set like a, a child table, one of those three. And the charting object is going to re-evaluate itself as data changes, either on commit or on refresh, just like a, a filter portal. And, and that's useful to know. Uh, you don't have to commit the data uh, to get the chart to update. You can refresh the window, and that'll cause the chart to update, um, which, is, which is good because you, you might be in... We were talking about it earlier, kind of the transactional model where you're you're editing child records all at once, and you if you encounter a problem, you want to revert the whole thing. Uh, so that that might be useful. Now, one thing to to realize about charts is uh, I, I said there's three potential data sources. One of those three potential data sources is the found set of records, and if if the chart is based on the found set of records on a a, a field in the uh, the local table, uh, and it's based on the found set of records. Uh, just like 
subsummary parts in a in a report, it requires the found set to be sorted in order to evaluate and and properly display your chart. Um, and that that's an important thing to know. I, not really having anything to do with the dependency tree, but it's a good thing to know. Oh, absolutely. That's that always gets people when I'm talking to them. They don't know that. And I don't do charting much, but it's one of the first things I learned about basing a chart on the found set. It mm. needs to be sorted. And they're kind of really designed mostly to be in sub-summer reports, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's that, that, the original intent. Uh, I don't know if you remember when they when they first introduced charting in FileMaker, the, the interface for putting you know a chart together was different than it is today. It was a, a different interface. Uh, and it was... Uh, Byzantine is the word I would use. Um, and, uh, and I ignored charts for several versions of FileMaker because of that. It, it, it was so uh, abstract and hard for me to grasp. What is this thing doing? And then they revamped the, the interface for defining a chart, and it became much better. They, they gave that little wizard, not, not quite a wizard interface, but a, a really much better interface, which included on the, on the layout, uh, in layout mode, the chart... Uh, updates itself as you're modifying the, the dialogue. It's really cool. So you can see, well, I make this change. What is, what is the chart going to look like? Oh, it's going to look like that. Well, that's what it's going to look like. Awesome. Uh, so I really like that. But I still find myself many times, um, that's an overstatement, uh, a good percentage of the time when I'm trying to set up a chart, I can't get it to work right. And it, I'm sure that's my own failing. It's, it's me not understanding the intricacies of getting a chart to work, you know? And so I, I find myself all, uh, oftentimes if I need to do charting, I export to Excel and let Excel do it. Uh, I, I hate to admit that, but it's true. Got a shameless plug here. We actually created a course on FileMaker charting and beyond at Productive Computing University, just because charting is something we don't always do. And there's just a lot to it when you think about it. So we talk about FileMaker built-in charts as well as uh, charting with Tableau. So I think our last thing on our list here is custom menus. And I just added it because, you know, I realized at the beginning uh, we hadn't mentioned custom menus. We made, made an outline. Do you have any you know, parting thoughts about custom menus and, and calculating them in the dependency tree? A lot of people don't realize that uh, when, when you define a custom menu uh, and you're adding custom menu items to that menu, uh, that you can calculate the name of the menu item. Uh, there's a, there's a, specify button there and you can put whatever you want in there. Uh, and if you uh, have a calculated thing that's dependent on data or say a variable, let's say you have a variable called double dollar menu item and you set it to some unique string and then you install that menu set on a layout or you navigate to a layout that has that menu set as its default, you're going to get that menu item in, in that menu, whatever that menu is. But instead of new record, it could be you know new customer or something. And then if you, by a data change or through a script, if you change the contents uh, of, the, of the field or variable that that custom menu item's name depends on, uh, it will not update just because you changed it. So if the menu item is, is set to double dollar menu item and you change the value that's in double dollar menu item, uh, the custom menus item won't change uh, as a result of that. And you might try a whole bunch of things to try and force it to change and none of them will work. So 
you might try a refresh window, and that doesn't do it. Uh, because the, the refresh window script step is really misnamed, if you ask me. It's, it's, it really doesn't refresh the window. What it refreshes is the window contents. Uh, it, it refreshes the layout, uh, but it does not refresh the Chrome around the window. But, so it doesn't refresh the button bar at the top or the status area. Uh, that doesn't, it isn't affected by the refresh window script step. And more to the point on Mac, not so much on Windows, because in Windows, the menus are tied to the to the windows. But on Mac, there's a menu bar at the top of the screen that's independent of the windows. So refresh window definitely doesn't touch the menu bar um, on Mac. So if if you wanted to update, oh, and the other thing is a commit. A commit records doesn't cause it to update either. Um, all of the standard tricks we would use to try and force a calculation to update will not cause that menu item to update. The thing that will cause it to update is a particular script step, which is install custom menu. Uh, I think is the name of the step. You need, you, you need to reinstall the custom menu, and then it'll refresh. And you don't need a refresh window to make it refresh. Just simply the install custom menu will do it. I think and, it's install menu set. Gotcha. Install menu set. Thank you very much. It should be yeah, called install custom menu, but that's that's what it is. So. Well, a menu set is a bunch of different custom menus. you got the file menu and the help menu and the whatnot. So I, I understand why they... You're right. It's cu install custom menu set. Uh, and that that is uh, uh, the script set you would need to do to force that update. Anyhow, so so it's interesting because when I do custom menus, I don't typically base it on content of the current record. I usually base it on the content of the current, uh, you know, like uh, what layout we're on. And that does update. Like if I have one custom menu that says, look at the layout name and use that to name this menu. So for instance, I will take the records menu and name it customers or invoices. And I only have to install it once on open for it to work correctly and update as you're going through and navigating. I don't have to run any install menu sets again. I just simply ran it the first time and it will update dynamically as I'm navigating. And I'm just curious about your, you know, how this relates to the content actually in the record, if you have any kind of input on that. Mm, well, uh, like you, uh, I never in, in real life, uh, use calculated menu items. <laughs> uh, I know that it's there. Um, FileMaker gives you the ability, but I've never really done it because I've never need, had the need to do it. Uh, I use custom menus a lot, but they're, they're always statically assigned text values. And, and I use them, you know, I install the menu set. Typically, I don't install the menu set on the, uh, on the on open script. I, it's typically, I just apply it to whatever layouts I need them. Um, and and as the user is navigated around the system, the the proper menu set pops into uh, existence for them. But there are situations where um, different privilege sets, you know, different different roles of user need different menus for the same screen. And uh, I so there are times when I do install, I use the install custom menu set script step to install one based on some conditional logic, and that's that's fine. Uh, but I, I rarely, once that's done, uh, I rarely ever find the need to, to change it after the fact. And um, I almost never 
find the need to use a calculation to figure out what I'm what I want to do after the fact. Follow me. So. Yeah, that's all right. It's I, I every developer does something different, right? And and for me, it was important to not have to keep running the install uh, menu uh, menu set, whatever we're deciding is called, because this is the thing is we don't memorize the stuff. We oh yeah, it's down there in the miscellaneous area, right? But uh, but as far as is 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 doing things, we all do things slightly differently. And I I like my menu that has that says records to say the name of the table that we're in to me it just makes sense and and the cool thing is is it will update just installing on 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 open that menu set and i don't have to change it so i can have this adaptive menu set in fact say on all the menu items will say show all customers or show all invoices i love that uh, you know that the way the dependency tree works on that in that manner but i'm also it's interesting to note how you've tested it, which is a little bit different than me, and and you found that hey, if we're we're basing it on data, you can't just simply type into the field and have the menu custom menu update. It's just it's not gonna it's it's not in the dependency tree to update it. So I think it's an interesting conversation here. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is interesting what will cause a menu set to update without a script. Um, if you navigate away from a layout and then back to a layout that has a custom menu applied to it. Uh, FileMaker reinstalls the custom menu when you when you navigate back to that layout. So if there has been a change uh, to a dynamically named menu item, uh, it'll update by doing that. Uh, another weird thing is uh, spawning a new window. Uh, so I, I I was demoing at one of my one of my uh, DevCon sessions when I was doing all this. I was demoing custom menus that were had a dynamically assigned name to one of the menu items. Uh, and I had a script trigger on the layout that installed the that that set the variable, and then installed the menu set. And I spawned a new window to to do something. And when I did, it it reran that trigger and reset to default my menu set. And in the middle of my demo, and then I was it threw me for a moment. I'm like, wait, why why did my menu change? My menu just changed. I went, oh, I know what I did. I just spawned a new window and it triggered the thing. All right, fair enough. Uh, but it was a, a mildly embarrassing moment in the middle of my session was was that because uh, it, 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 it's not necessarily a calculation re-evaluating, but it is the menu set itself getting re, you know, reestablished, reinstalled, whatever word you want to use. Interesting stuff. The, the one time uh, we use one time that we use calculations with menu sets is like the difference between Mac and Windows. Some plugins work on Mac or Windows, so we can show a function or hide a function based on a condition of platform. That's and that's one great example of not wanting to create a whole another menu set just because someone's on Windows versus Mac. That's where you can throw that calculation and either show it or hide it based on platform. Just one crude yeah, example. Yeah. And that totally makes sense. Uh, just th closing thoughts on the dependency tree. Um, uh, just getting back to what I said at the very beginning, which is uh, w when you asked me, why is this important? Um, I, I'm, I'm really hopeful that someone out there listening to this uh, gathered some nugget of, of information or wisdom that helps improve their experience with the product and their solution. And that's, that's why I do anything I do is it, try and help people to try and improve people's lives in some way. And I'm, I'm hopeful that that is what is going to happen here. Uh, 
because it, it, it is an important thing. It, do, it does help to know when certain things are going to be reevaluated and uh, so that you can anticipate it changing out from under you instead of having it surprise you in that or, or more to the point surprising your clients or your users. Um, it's uh, a good thing to know that you can depend on certain behavior and, and uh, predict it. And predictability is a good thing in FileMaker, in my opinion. So that, that, those are, I guess, my closing thoughts. Well, I'm glad that we talked not only about the dependency tree, but about performance and how that impacts calculations and their ability to update and when. And in certain use cases we all brought up over the course of the two hours, I think those are all really good pieces of information. You could almost do another whole podcast for under the hood techniques and strategies for performance and things like that. You may have already done that, but it would be a good topic. No, I just want to say thanks for having Darren today. It was uh, very enlightening. Yeah, it's amazing, uh, you know, spending, what, uh, close to 30 years in the FileMaker market, how much information he's amassed. And it's not about the details. You know, you say, hey, I can't remember whether show custom dialogue, you can do the calculations, uh, you know, on the buttons or not. Who cares? You can look anytime you want. The whole point of this is that Darren's got the that general knowledge, that under the hood knowledge that tells him the important stuff that you can't get feedback from FileMaker about. And hopefully he's imparted, I, well, I know he's imparted a lot of that information, um, but you know, you got to realize there's a lot to know about FileMaker if you want to program at, at his level, you know, at an enterprise level. And, and hopefully this has given you a taste of what, you know, what uh, it requires to do that. It's, it's, he's gotten this from working at tech support, uh, working with clients, uh, going to DevCon, talking to the FileMaker engineers. Oh, of course, he gets to go there two days a week on usually, and that helps out. So he gets to talk to a lot of engineers. But, you know, not everybody can have that, but he's giving you the information. So take it and run. Um, and uh, I think that, uh, you know, I, I would love to have you on again. Uh, I know you're extremely busy, and and uh, but uh, this was this podcast was amazing uh, as far as information i'm i'm glad to have had you on i'm i'm very thankful thank you guys for uh, having me was, this was a lot of fun i'd love to do it again at some point in the future that would be great you've been listening to fireside filemaker a podcast with john mark osborne and michael richard we'd love to hear what you think so please email us at info at firesidefilemaker.com that's info at firesidefilemaker.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.